tend this to be unedited or is it? Oh, I'm definitely going to edit it. Don't okay. worry about that. Okay, guys. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the first ever This Should Work podcast. That would make it session one, I suppose. This Should Work is a podcast about craft, making, and scaling projects up. At its heart, This Should Work podcast is a celebration of doers and the things they make. People who take their passions to the next level by bringing their physical ideas to market. My name is Jay Margulis, and I'll be your host. Today, we're interviewing Andrew Camaradella, president of the Chicago Hackerspace Pumping Station One, and an industrial designer by trade. In this session, we talk about the design and making process, how to find clients for your design and making work, and how to facilitate a creative environment for others to do the same. Before we get started, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this new podcast series and what you'll get out of it. Okay, so for those of you who don't know me, I've been running Makerspaces, which are creative places where people can get together and make things with each other, for about the last 10 years. Uh, and in addition to that, I, I work on my own physical products, uh, build a lot of things. In fact, we're going to be interviewing one of the people I work with uh, in the coming podcasts, Rudy Ristich, to talk about some of those projects. But anyways, uh, in those 10 years, one of the things I've noticed is that when people talk about makerspaces, they, uh, they often kind of gloss over this, this scaling up aspect of making. In other words, People talk a lot about the creative work that happens, the community work that happens at makerspaces, and they talk about you know the the prototypes that people make. Um, but it's not very often that you see projects kind of scale up from there. And in addition to that, um, you know makerspaces aren't really anything new. There are kind of clubs that have been around that are very similar for the past several 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 decades. You know, almost a century. Um, you know, you've got co-ops. Uh, like pottery co-ops, which we'll talk about in this podcast today. You've got uh, ham radio clubs that have been around that do a lot of the same things that makerspaces do. And so this podcast, in addition to, to being about scaling products up, is about what's the difference? What's the difference between these makerspaces and these other craft spaces out there? Um, and so we're going to explore that a little bit in these coming episodes and hopefully kind of really dive into what this all means for the maker movement, if it is a movement, um, craft, uh, and, and for people who want to take their products to scale and, and release them and make money off of them. So I hope you enjoy this, this series, uh, and we'll be releasing an episode about every week. And um, just stay tuned, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll see where this all takes us. Oh, and if you want to find the material in our show notes and other details from this podcast, visit shouldworkmedia.com. That's shouldworkmedia.com. All right, thanks for listening, and without further ado, here's session one. Um, so this is session one of This Should Work with Andrew Camardella, who is the president of Pumping Station One and who is an industrial designer by trade. And Andrew, thanks so much for joining 
me and being our first interview uh, of this whole podcast. No problem. My pleasure. I, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to hearing more about these, these interviews. So I'm glad I, I get to set the bar. <laughs> awesome. So, um, you know, Andrew, we've known each other for, I don't know, quite some time and, uh, pumping station one, um, be interesting if you could give people a little bit of background on, on what that is and, and what you do there. But I kind of wanted to dive in before we got into that, into, some of your work as as an industrial designer and as a craftsperson yourself, because I know you have a very very uh, deep background in in craft. And so, um, you know, maybe if you could just talk a little bit to start about what it is that you that that you do uh, during the daytime while you're not presidenting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, during the day, I'm an industrial designer and digital fabricator. Um, so basically. I am independent. I work with a variety of different clients and um, generally I'm working with uh, independent entrepreneurs, inventors, uh, small companies that uh, don't have internal design teams, um, things like that. And I help people figure out how to make stuff uh, and how to uh, work through various challenges through the product development process. So sometimes that's very early on. Uh, conceptualizing a new product, um, trying to find a user need, uh, and then addressing that user need the best uh, with within the the scope of the company or the uh, inventor's particular uh, domain, uh, all the way down to manufacturing. So uh, developing CAD drawings, developing manufacturing drawings, finding manufacturers. Um, so that really ranges pretty broadly uh, from project to project. And uh, it really just depends on, on, on what the, the client asks for. Um, but then lots of times there's some direction. I'm giving direction in terms of like, well, you should probably focus on this aspect first uh, as opposed to you know, these, other, these other components. So it's, it's a little bit, it varies a lot, uh, but it's very interesting. And I tend to work on kind of niche products that uh, maybe are one-offs. I've done a, quite a few art projects as well. Uh, so yeah, if you want me to get more specific, I can. Um, but yeah, uh, basically I figure out, I help people figure out how to make stuff. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. I did a little, um, I've got a lot of questions for you. I did a little looking into some of the things you make. It looks like you're really, uh, you do some work with furniture as well. I saw, um, maybe like a chair that you made that, uh, uh, for children. Um, and some other things. And so maybe we can dig into that in a little bit, but you know, I think for people who are listening, um, you know, and I'm thinking a lot of, uh, of my students at DePaul who maybe, you know, want to, want to get started independently themselves or other people who might want to get started independently. How did you, how did you first find the the clients that you, uh, that you work with? And maybe could you give us an example of, if you can, Mm -hmm. of a project or a client that you're, you're currently work with, or you've worked with in the past Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, kind of how you began that engagement? Sure. Um, So I got a school in, we could start from the very beginning and I I got a school uh, in 2009. So there weren't a whole lot of designers being hired by, by companies. So, uh, you know, had my portfolio, got out of college, was, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, wanted to go get a job at a design firm. And um, unfortunately, in the middle of a recession, nobody wants to hire designers. So um, I ended up working for a 3D scanning company in Baltimore, where I'm originally from. Uh, and I also did some design work um, 
as internships and things like that through through a, a few different companies, which I was really grateful for at the time. Uh, and I ended up kind of diversifying my skill sets right out of college um, to just do different things and explore and, and find uh, different things that I like working on. Uh, so that was a little bit of a strange trajectory from what the expected pathway is out of college. Uh, and so I did 3D, I worked for this 3D scanning company for about three years, did a whole bunch of different projects, um, different project management. Um, we were, you know, working in the film industry. We were working for aerospace and military and uh, doing all different types of projects uh, with all different kinds of clients, all different sizes. Uh, so that really kind of gave me this like breadth of knowledge of how to integrate with a project that was a little bit non-traditional. Uh, and so then from there, I, I had this extra skill set now of 3D scanning, and I can combine that together with what is tip, a pretty traditional skill set now in the industrial design world when you're in college and uh, you, the, you learn basically digital manufacturing, uh, you're doing you know, CAD drawings, you're learning a little bit of production methodology. Um, so this kind of all fit together uh, some way and I ended up moving to Chicago and ended up working for another 3D scanning company actually doing product design. So that was a little bit. How did, how did that tra transition happen uh, you know, from, from one company to the next? Uh, that's, uh, so I moved to Chicago um, basically because um, I was tired of working in Baltimore. I, there wasn't too much of a design scene and I was I guess I was had an itch uh, of getting more into a design scene, in and Baltimore didn't really have one at the time. It's still, I'd say, relatively weak compared to Chicago. Uh, and so I had come to Chicago looking at grad school, you know, several years before that. And I was like, I'm going to move back to Chicago at some point. And so then um, my my girlfriend actually ended up getting a um, her med school was here. And so I, she, she was going to be here and that it seemed like a good time for me to, to come here as well. So sure. I kind of was okay. like ready for a transition. And so I moved here and then from there, um, you know, got to experience the design scene a little bit, um, got to know various people that were involved with, with several companies. I had some friends that worked here as well. And from there, it's just really networking. Um, and it became more evident to me not working for a company anymore that like networking was really the pathway to, you know, getting projects and getting jobs. And, and so getting out in front of people and talking about what their project was and seeing if there was a good fit between what my skill sets were and what they needed. Uh, and, and then really trying to, to brainstorm how those things fit together um, okay. was how I started to get involved. So then from there, you know, things kind of, um, they kind of like built on top of one another. And so, you know, you start to meet people and then somebody introduces you to somebody else and you would do a project and then somebody sees that project and they say, Hey, you can come do a project for me. And, and that's kind of how it all worked out. Um, so I want to, I want to touch on one more thing before we move on. And that's, you said when you, you were first working and you were in Baltimore that you worked in, in project management. And this is something that I've, I've noticed fairly often is that, you know, a designer, might come out of school and, and maybe the first position that's available isn't in, you know, UX or industrial design, mm -hmm. but, but has something to do with project management. And I was wondering, 
if you could talk a little bit more more about that and and maybe if sure. you know do you think that those skills kind of ha- have helped you um you know either get projects or or run your you know your kind of consulting projects that that you're currently working on yeah uh definitely that, that so i guess traditionally there's there's a few positions that designers get out of out of college and um and i would say that generally um it's not in a project management role or at least that's not what i had traditionally envisioned as something that i would do right out of college uh and that i'd be more of like a you know, developing CAD models or doing sketching and things like that, which is some, still something I did in this job, but that the projects were so varied and they had so many different requirements. And because it was three scanning company, not a design company, you know, we didn't really do that much traditional design work. I ended up working on design projects for this company. Um, but yeah, it ended up being that uh, there's more of a management type of role where you're looking at requirements and figuring out how to fulfill those requirements and working with other people and working with the clients needed uh, and then looking at a project and trying to um, assemble the resources in a way that um, that makes sense. So part of that is a technical requirement and so understanding technically what you need to do and part of it is a business requirement. So you know, that's working with sales guys and people that are writing quotes and, and trying to um, talk about process. And so it was kind of, I think that, it, you know, it has a lot to do with the design process overall, more so than um, traditionally getting into a design firm, which then you might do a very limited sort of subset of those skills. So, you know, you kind of have to think a little bit bigger picture and uh, try to understand all these different components that are fitting together both technically and in a business sense. Yeah, I'm glad, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I want to jump ahead now. So you're in Chicago, you're working with these clients that you have, um, and you're probably also, you know, you have, I'm sure you have personal projects. I'd love to talk about those too. Yeah, I, I have uh, quite a few personal projects. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, so jumping ahead and, you're, and you're, you've moved from Baltimore and, and you're in Chicago and you've got this experience in project management. And as you just mentioned, I think, which is which is really important to me. You know, it's it's an, in addition to design process, it's, it's it's important to understand business and it's important to understand, particularly in industrial design, but also just in making, um, and mm-hmm. and, and sure, certainly making things at extreme scale. Uh, you need to understand the cost of things and what that means for a small project, and then how that scales out. Um, right. So, so okay. So you're you're in Chicago, and and now you're you've got your network. Um, and I, I want to talk about that real quick because you, you, you mentioned you do a lot of networking to get your, your clients. Um, but you know, I, and again, I'm thinking about a lot of my students at DePaul and just other people who are, you know, maybe they're tinkering at a makerspace or on their own and they're having fun doing their own thing, but maybe they're thinking about moving on to, to actually, you know, making that part of their profession, whether part-time or, or full-time. And what does that mean to you to, to, to build those networks? And how do you go about doing that to, to find the people who you can do some work for or find the people who might buy your things? Yeah, um, that's kind of a tricky question to answer. And I, I've been, that's something that kind of has always been in the back of my mind, right? Is, is how do you find the people that need your service, right? And a lot of that has to do with understanding not just what your skill sets are, but how you can help somebody else um, accomplish something. And so 
it's not just a question of saying, well, I can draw and I can do CAD and I can, um, you know, I can do math or something like that, right? It's really more about, well, how do I apply that in a way that is meaningful to somebody else? Uh, and so once you can figure that out um, and you, that's going to sort of describe a little bit more what it is that you might like to do, uh, you can then find sort of these pockets of people that might need that, right? So um, that's kind of, that's all kind of vague. So I'm trying to make a specific example, but for example, in the, in Chicago, there's lots of inventors groups, right? So one of the things that I started doing was just kind of going and, and going to these inventors groups. And, uh, eventually, you know, I got to know the people that were organizing the group and I got to talk in front of a bunch of inventors that had a bunch of different ideas and I got to know patent attorneys. And so from there, you know, this little, this little effort of saying, well, I like working on new ideas and I like helping people figure out how to do, how to come up with new ideas and how to execute new ideas. Um, I can now find specific people that need my services. So, you know, on the one hand, you have the inventor that has a, a nice idea and they need to prototype it and they might need to make um, some functional mock-ups or they might need to make some beauty mock-ups to be able to go to a, a a manufacturer or go to a, a somebody that might resell their product. On the other hand, you know, you start talking to attorneys and you start talking to patent lawyers and you start saying, well, okay, I now I have this other skill set. I can apply it to doing better patent drawings, right? And so I, I'm doing CAD for this inventor. I can now use that CAD and turn it into patent drawings that can, um, you know, help this inventor protect their idea and help the patent attorney make a better patent. So, you know, you start to get involved in these different um, avenues and from there that's kind of how the network builds uh, and I think that that works on a lot of different levels you know I just talked about a little specific group but for example one of the big projects that I had done and and that I still kind of do um, is 3d scanning and some of that has to do with art so you start talking to artists and you start talking to fabricators and you start talking about well how does the how does the 3D scanning impact the process that the artist has? And then how does it impact the manufacturing process? Um, how do you sell art? You know, so on the very front end, can you take a maquette and make it full scale? Um, on the other hand, how do you preserve it? So how do you show it to somebody else? How do you save, you know, something that's priceless? And, and um, uh, so I think that that's part of it is thinking a little bit outside the box in terms of, um, what you can do, not just thinking about the skill set, but then how somebody might be able to um, benefit from that. Sure. I mean, so we've all got these notions of what we, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm going to go back to my, some of my students, but we have these, they have these notions of what it is that their degree allows them to do and their skill set allows yeah. them to do out of college. And it's, it's sort of, uh, take some time for them to realize that there's a lot more than they can do. For instance, you know, a, a student that gets a game design degree might might originally think, uh, you know, that, that all they can really do is make uh, make video games. And there are um, all sorts of other things that those skill sets that they they learn can apply to. They can they can apply yeah. those skill sets to developing exhibits um, at museums or uh, to developing. Uh, interactive experiences for, you know, big companies, you know, for instance, I know there's a company called M1 Interactive in Chicago that pays, you know, a lot of game design people to, to make interactive exhibits for the NFL, for instance. 
And so kind of understanding the value of having of what you're really learning in, as a game designer and that you're learning uh, systems thinking um, right. is, is and, and these more broadly applicable skills is is, uh, is important. Is that kind of what you're getting at or? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it's really it's kind of like taking the skill set that you have and trying to apply it in different in different venues and um, it, I think it has a lot to do with, um, being able to expand, uh, I'm, I'm kind of failing the word, the words are failing me right now, but it's being able to sort of take that base skill set and try to transform it or look at it in a different perspective and then apply it in a different way. So like, absolutely, you're absolutely correct about the, you know, game design and systems design. And, you know, there's a, there's a parallel between being able to, at a high level, understand how something is made and being able to manage the production process around that, right? From the very early conceptual stages all the way down to how do you manufacture this thing? And that there's, there's all these pieces that kind of fit together and that you're always managing these pieces, right? And that it isn't a linear process. And, and so when you start to use a little bit of fuzzy thinking around it, right, there's a lot of, there's a lot of places where that is applicable. Um, so one of the examples is that currently I have a friend who runs a restaurant. And um, one of the challenges that she has is training. Right. And so when you when you start to look at that, right, there's a process there of like, how do you bring a new person in? How do you train them to do a specific task? Right. And they're making food in this case. Um, and how do you manage the that the throughput of, of resources? Right. So part of it is the person's time. Part of it is, you know, the food that's getting made. Right. But that that like when you kind of back away from it is the design process um, all the way. And, and, you know, to a certain extent, it's it's conceptualizing something on the front end of like, well, how's this going to taste and how's it going to look and how might somebody perceive it all the way through the production process. Right. And, and so I think that that really applies to a lot of different things. If you step back and you kind of try to look at it holistically and you, and then you try to break down the pieces within that entire process into something that's manageable, you can kind of shoehorn things together. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. It does. And there are a couple of things that you've, you've touched on in the last couple of minutes that I want to ask you about real, real quick. So I could put it in the show notes too. I think some people might be curious. You mentioned a bunch of, um, you know, inventors groups in Chicago. Are there some favorite ones you have that I could put in the show notes? Um, so at this point, um, the Chicago inventors organization is the one that comes to mind. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple of other ones. There's there's a few in in the Chicago area, um, but I think I haven't really been involved with them very much uh, recently, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with sort of being able to network and and you start to kind of learn where to go from there. And like right now, um, I recent I just had a I had a patent attorney call me that I hadn't worked with in a couple of years. And I, that, that had remembered me from a project that I had done where I did patent drawings, right? So, you know, that's, I'm, I'm actually looking at a patent drawing book right now on my desk because I pulled it out to kind of like talk about a project. And so that kind of like came back, 
Um, so I hadn't, hadn't done that in a while. And that sort of is, is something that came back recently, or I, I uh, just recently ran into um, um, a, a lady that I had done a, a packaging design project with. So that network kind of, if you can build those relationships and, and you can keep in touch with people, I think is super fruitful uh, in terms of, um, of finding the next project. Either that's returning back to, a pro to, to work with somebody that you've worked with in the past or even have them recommend you forward, right, to somebody else that they know. Right, yeah, okay. So, I, you know, and I'm very familiar with that too. It's kind of one of those uh, virtuous, uh, what do they call those, virtuous cycles or something like that, right, where, you know, eventually if you've done enough good work and you've been around long enough, you, you kind of come to people's minds and right. they may recommend you or call you up on their next project or what have you. I'm yeah. sure also, and I want to get to this in a little bit, that, you know, uh, being the the president of Pumping Station One and such kind of a public figure there, uh, and kind of you know being top of mind for a lot of people, mm -hmm. that that's a good networking, yeah, uh, component as well. And I want I want to talk about talk about makerspaces in a little bit. Sure, uh, but I'll I'll put that information in the show notes. You know, um, so I appreciate that. Yeah. And then the other thing that you had talked about that that and you've mentioned it a couple times here, and this is this is, this kind of gets to the heart of what. I am going to, you know, what um, this should work, this, this podcast is going to be a lot about, which is, you know, this design and making process. And you refer to that constantly, right? The, the design process that your, your friend's using in the restaurant, the design process that you applied, you know, when you, even when you were working back at companies in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. um, and the design process is, is one component of it. And then like we were talking about before, you've got this, this process of like scaling where as one of my colleagues and I refer to it at DePaul, uh, Nate Madison, extreme scaling. Mm -hmm. So what is the, for, for you, you know, whether it's a personal project or, or a professional project, do you, do you have, do you apply the same design process? And what does that, what does that mean to you as a, as a designer and as a creator? Yeah, that's, that's, so that's um, kind of an interesting question because I think process varies from person to person. Right. And, and so um, if you kind of look at, the industrial design process, right? The sort of this traditional kind of like, um, how do we make mass produced objects? Uh, and you break that down. It's really um, kind of similar to what we learned even earlier in school, which was the scientific process, right? Where you develop a hypothesis and you test that hypothesis and you you measure that against what you expected and, and you make changes based on that, right? So I think that, um, the, in particular, the design process is geared towards, the industrial design process is geared towards a very specific kind of output. Um, and you've seen, there's larger companies that have kind of come along and kind of turned that upside down. And there's this new term, um, design thinking, that is, is very popular now. Uh, but I think that they're all very interrelated, right? It, it's not that, it's not that we're discovering new things, right? These ideas, I think, to a certain extent have existed for a very long time, they've just been framed differently. And they've been framed to solve different problems. So if you back away far enough from it, um, you can start to find this kind of like, um, like test and measure process. And so that in particular with making, right, in the context of making, in the context of, of trying something new, right? And like conceptually, the, the, the idea behind the title of the show, right, is, 
is that you don't necessarily know that it's going to work, uh, but you're going to you're going to give it a shot, right? You're going to try something, and you're going to see how that turns out. And and the point is to always be learning something from that experience, right? It's not that you're going to be successful all the time. And I think that the design process and and the process of making and exploring has a lot to do with that idea of I'm going to try something, and if it doesn't work, really all I need to do is learn from that. It's not that I have to be successful and I have to finish or I have to get to my goal, but that if I can learn from that every single time, then I'm going to get a step closer, regardless of whether I had a successful test or a, or a failed test. Um, and so that's something that I say a lot to people, especially around the hackerspace, uh, is and is this idea of failing faster. Is you, it's not that you want to fail all the time, but that it's okay to fail as long as you learn something from it. And part of it is to make tests that are small enough and discrete enough that if you do fail, it's not a big deal. Uh, but at the same time, you're learning something in the process of doing that. And I think that in essence, the design process is like a big, it's kind of a big version overall over the lifespan of an entire product of doing this over and over and over again. Uh, and I think that that's why it works. You can apply it in a lot of different areas because if you break it down to the basic building block, you can really apply this idea anywhere. And I think that that's part of the reason why this like maker movement and hackerspaces and, and maker spaces is a really powerful idea for and tool for communicating this. So there, there are two, actually there are probably three things, but I only want to focus on two of them right now that I kind of want to unpack in, in what you just said. You talked about failing, failing fast um, and, and kind of not worrying, not worrying so much about the outcome, but the, you know, focusing on the learning process and some of the things that I see, um, I mean, certainly at makerspaces as well as with, with, you know, students at DePaul, um, is a deficiency in, in sometimes at least in a couple of these areas. And and one of them might be a deficiency in being afraid to fail. Um, and what that leads to is playing it safe and maybe making something that isn't uh, as as um, boundary pushing or as uh, speculative or innovative as it could be, whatever word you yeah. want to use for that feeling. And and the second one is actually almost the converse of that, which is students who have no problem with failure but are are never capable of producing um, some kind of final product. And if I wonder if you could speak to that, but I think it, and it's you know this is just my opinion, of course. So maybe you could correct me yeah. if I'm wrong here. But a lot of what I see at makerspaces is the latter. It's a lot of tinkering without actually getting to any end product. And, you know, there's a, mm -hmm. there's a, an academic piece that um, I think Ian Bogus and Tom Jenkins wrote called Escaping the Sandbox. That's about that component. And so there are kind mm -hmm. of these two opposing ideas here. So on the, on, on the one hand, how do you, you know, like we're kind of sliding right into talking about Pumping Station 1 here a little bit at least, but how do you create an environment where people, um, you know, people feel that it's that fosters this idea of it, it being okay to fail? And on the other mm -hmm. hand, how do you balance that out with, um, you know, fostering an environment of, yeah, it's great to it's okay to fail and it's okay to keep keep working at something, but you know, eventually, you gotta you gotta pull that trigger too. You gotta make you 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 need to know when to pull the parachute and to and to make a thing, you know, but re release your baby out on the world. How do you, you as the president of pumping station one, but also as a, as a fellow creator, you know, foster that in other people and, and also instill that in your own process. 
Yeah, that's definitely, it's something that kind of I run into a lot, even in my own work, right? When in part, in part, it's, it's being able to work through that fear component, that, that fear of failure. And it, sometimes it, it creeps up on me too, right? And in the process of working on something or working on a project or thinking about something and you, you start to plan, right? And you start to plan and think and uh, you have this idea and it's sort of transforming in front of you and you're trying to nail it down, but you're not quite sure exactly where that's supposed to go or you know how this is all going to work out. Um, that sometimes not doing something and trying to plan it out is really what's preventing you from moving forward. And at a certain point, you just have to do it. Um, sure. So, uh, you know, what's a good time to do that? I think that that really depends on what the requirements of the project are. So, uh, you know, in, a, in the business sense or in, in, my, in my own business, whenever I face that in my project, generally the reason is that I haven't defined what the goal is um, well enough. And, and lots of times that's just as simple as going back to the client and having another conversation uh, and talking to them about, well, what, is, what are we really trying to, to do here? What's the goal? And, and so being able to focus on that and work towards it, but at the same time not be frozen by not being able to accomplish the goal, I think is, is really instrumental. Uh, and so I totally understand what you're saying about uh, on the one hand, you know, it's a, it's a great way, failing faster is a great way to um, prevent being frozen, but at the same time, it's also a way in which you might never really fully achieve the thing that you're, you're going for um, because you don't want to finish. Uh, and, and so there's, um, there's a book uh, by Austin Kleon called Show Your Work, uh, which is it's a short book. It's, a, it's kind of a, a really quick read. Um, very kind of anecdotal, but has these sort of rules for how do you put yourself out there, right? And so I think that that's the other part of it is that one of the things that the makerspace brings is that forum for being able to show something in the world. And I think that that's a really important part towards finishing and that you can hide something and you can kind of go on this like fail faster journey by yourself. But I think part of it is is then always trying to put it out there and trying to show somebody and even if it's not finished to develop um, this body of work that doesn't just show you the end product but then also shows you the process and the failures and the successes in that in that thing and so I think the other component of failing faster is also needing to share that with somebody and I think makerspaces and hackerspaces are a really great place where everybody's already in this mindset of like I have this project and I'm working on it and it's kind of weird or it's interesting or it's very useful or, you know, whatever the requirement is or whatever the goal is. Um, but then being able to show it to somebody and getting some feedback and being able to not work in this like bubble where it's just you. Uh, and I think being able to show it to somebody else is really important to, to getting done. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, I absolutely uh, see that, um, you know, at our uh, makerspace at DePaul, you know, there's a lot of um, pedagogical frameworks around that to use academic words. There are, there are a lot of people who come up with that, that have ascribed a name to that way of thinking. Um, and mm -hmm. one of the, the chief ones is Seymour Papert's constructionist thinking. I'm sure you've probably heard of that before. Um, or maybe, you know, but I'll put it in the show notes too. Um, but you know, that's 
basically Papert would um, say there's a really good book he, he wrote called Mindstorms. He's also the person who kind of is behind Lego Mindstorms. And he's mm-hmm. his whole idea is, you know, it's not enough to make something. You have to share that thing as well um, right. and, and work with others. And, you know, the way I've always described it to some of my students is it's the difference between playing guitar in your in your bedroom um, and playing it in front of a live audience, you know. Yeah, uh, you you, exactly. you get a lot of feedback from playing with a live audience. You get a lot of feedback from playing with you know with a band too. It's not just, right. and that's just not just about playing in front of people, but it's playing with other people. So, you know, there's a big difference there. And so, I really appreciate that you address those things. You know, so the, the, I said two out of three things because really the third thing, aside from from you know being able to iterate and fail fast and. As, as well as, you know, get to the point where you're, you're making a thing, right? You're where the rubber hits the road is this whole other, um, uh, idea of scaling up, uh, and, and taking, you know, this little tinker thing that you made and, and making it into something that, that comes to fruition. And certainly as an industrial designer, I'm sure you have some experience with that too. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could, you know, maybe talk a little bit about some of the challenges you've faced as an industrial designer, or as you know, working with your customers and your clients, um, what are some of the challenges you see with with bringing things to scale? Um, you know, from from that prototype and into something that that is a final product. Yeah, I, I uh, it's a, it's definitely a different set of challenges than coming up with the idea. But um, as simple as this may sound, right? It's it's a little bit more of the same process with just different requirements, and so. Um, part of it is part of the challenge is coming up with the idea and figuring out what the needs are. But now that you're working with a manufacturer and you have something that you want to produce, you now have slightly different requirements where you know what you want to make, but then you're still having to figure out, um, how to make a lot of those things or how to make those things better or how to make those things fail less. Right. So part of it is breaking down once again, the, what the goal is and trying to address that with these smaller discrete tests. So lots of times um, going to a manufacturer and saying, I want to produce this thing isn't as easy as I have this finished product. I've made one of these things and I want to make a thousand of these things. It's not, it's it's hardly ever that easy. I can't even think of a situation where it was (laughs) right. And lots of times the manufacturer is going to know lots of things about what it is that you're trying to make that you never considered um, in the process of making that one. And so relying on the manufacturer as a resource uh, of information and being able to work with them, just like you've worked with your client up to this point to figure out what it is that you should make um, or figure or talking to your users and figuring out what they need. Um, you know, the manufacturer is a similar stakeholder in that they want to be successful too in producing something. And so you can query them and you can work with them in a way that makes whatever that final product is better. Um, So for example, I'm working on a vacuum forming project now and being able to talk to the manufacturer and say, okay, well, I have a few ideas about how this, how you're going to cut this part out when it's done, but if you cut it like this, does it make a difference in the price when instead of cutting it like this? Or can we use less material here if we change the design slightly? Or is it going to be uh, easier to 
have this type of mold as opposed to that kind of mold. So like there's all these different kind of requirements that pop up uh, in the process of making that final product that you might not know about ahead of time um, because you've only made one or because you've only been thinking about how this product addresses a need as opposed to how then this other stakeholder has a different need. Yeah, so what I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of what I'm hearing is, you know, number one, you need to be very familiar with with your product so that you can then, two, communicate it with, communicate, you know, the the core requirements to somebody else, you know, your drawings, um, the materials that you need to use, while still kind of staying true to, to that product and the the people who are you know the the end solution or the end environment that that thing's supposed to be uh placed in um so yeah yeah absolutely i mean and that's so i you know that's kind of um you know really interesting for, to me from from the standpoint of you know your individual process and how you approach things how you conceptualize how you then you know kind of make the thing and that prototype and then how you you scale it and one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, kind of creating an environment where other people can do that too. And, you know, we've talked about Pumping Station One a little bit already. I mean, Pumping Station One is a, you guys call yourself a hackerspace still, right? Makerspace, hackerspace, craftspace, whatever people call them yeah. these days. You're a hackerspace. Um, you know, you've been around for, you're the, probably the oldest in Chicago, if not the Midwest. Uh, hackerspace, mm-hmm. you've been around for, I would assume over a decade now, right? We are, we're going to be 10 in January. Okay. Yeah. So about, so, about 10 years. Is there going to be a party for that, by the way? Uh, we're, yeah, there should be a party where we're talking about trying to do a party sooner than later, but I, <laughs> I can, there's, there's probably going to be a decade party in there somewhere. Is that, is that because January parties in Chicago are not well attended or is that for some other reason? <laughs> well, we, for some reason we've, we typically celebrate our, the birthday <laughs> of a pumping station one in April. And I, I don't know if it's just that we're always late or that's just when it's always been. And I didn't, until I was looking at the actual incorporation documentation, I didn't realize that our birthday was in January. <laughs> I always thought it was, I always thought it was in April. So, um, so you've been around since, I mean, Jan, so January, April, whatever name you want to put on it. Yeah. You've been around for about 10 years. Yeah. Um, definitely the biggest, if not one of the biggest hacker spaces in the area. How many members yeah. do you have now? Um, so the most recent number that I saw was 580, 580. Wow. Uh, and your space is, is how big? Uh, we're just over 11,000 square feet. Okay. So you're you're 11, you're an 11,000 square foot location with about almost 600 members. And what happens for people who aren't familiar with hacker spaces, which could, could very well be many people listening to this. What happens at a hackerspace in, in just a, give me, give us kind of like an elevator pitch. Um, so the, what I usually tell people is that we're uh, a community of people that like to make things. Uh, so it, it kind of fits pretty well with, with my whole shtick about helping people make things. But um, yeah, so Pumping Station One is a community of people that like to make things and like to share experiences and that um, our entire space and organization is built by the members for the members uh, in service of, of this idea of being able to explore and and find interesting intersections between technology, science, culture, um, and, and being able to share that experience with people. So we're a not-for-profit 
and we're completely member run. We have no staff. Everybody's a volunteer. Uh, and we rely very heavily on our members to get involved and make the space for what they want it to be. And so initially it was just 30 people in a coffee shop getting together and talking about software. And from there it blossomed into more electronics tool sets and people started bringing in um, more equipment and they started bringing in metal lathes and, and chop saws and, and, and various pieces of equipment. And then from there we kind of grew into the space that we're at now uh, where we have full full metal shop, full wood shop, full electronics lab. Uh, we have arts and crafts area, CNC. Um, basically, we're equipped to make pretty much anything on a small scale. Uh, and that's really exciting because people can come into it not knowing anything and learn a lot. Uh, but then people that do come in with some experience end up really contributing very heavily and, and really share that knowledge. And that's really great. So I'm gonna I think that's it. I'm going to ask you the question that you've probably heard, um, a, you know, at least a million times. Uh, you have a laser cutter too, right? Yes, <laughs> we have a laser cutter as okay. well. Okay, yes, that's that is the question we always get as well. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, so you've got all of these these tools, 3D print. You've got all these new tools, but you've got a lot of these traditional tools too, right? You know, yeah. like you mentioned a wood shop. I know um, at least. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a write-up in Make about Pumping Station One being a really big place for welding, as mm -hmm. well. And I visited, and you guys have a you know a huge shop for for not a huge shop. you have a a good amount of space set aside for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's our that's our hot metals area. Yeah. So you've got tools, but also you mentioned community. Yeah. Um, and what that sounds a lot like to me is you know I have I have friends, for instance, they're members of. Um, I think it's the oldest. It, it might be, maybe not. The, uh, one of the oldest potteries in the country um, that's run as a co-op. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called Wesleyan Potters. It's in Connecticut. Uh, and, and so very much the same model that you're talking about here. Um, but they call themselves, you know, like a craft co-op. And so they have looms there and they have a pottery. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think the difference is between what a makerspace might be and what mm -hmm. like a traditional craft space that's been around for 80, 90, 100 years um, does? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, that, that, I think, depends a lot on who you talk to. And when I'm giving sort of the general, general talk on what a hackerspace is, I use these terms pretty interchangeably. I use hackerspace, makerspace, fab lab, maker lab, co-op, uh, community workshop. They're all kind of, they're, they're, they're intertwined right um and i would say that they differ many times on the type of community that that participates in that space um sometimes it's, it has a lot to do with the structure of how the organization is laid out and um the other part of it is who you serve and how and how those people that come in are served um so in terms of our own space, I'd say that we rely very heavily on our on our community. And I think for me, a hacker space has always had this other connotation of being able to look at um, systems of things. So part of that that comes from you know software and hacking software, but then um, also looking at electronics, and you can really start to extrapolate that to different materials and and how do you and and assembled things right so can you take something apart and can you re, 
can you fix it? Can you put it back together in a different way? Can you um, change its original functionality? You know, things like that. So that's, I think part of it is what the hackerspace does or what you can do in a hackerspace and part of the philosophy surrounding what you can do in a hackerspace. Um, but in terms, I guess, of a co-op, um, to me, that sort of means uh, you're cooperating with a bunch of people that are there and that that community kind of serves um, or rather the organization of that space serves like fewer people. But, but that's, I, like I said, it's kind of, it's a little bit nebulous, it's a little bit fuzzy in terms of, of how you describe yourself, I think. Um, yeah, so that's, that's interesting because, I mean, you know, f first we should preface this by saying there's there, no one hackerspace is the same. And really, you know, a lot of what each space might do is dependent on its community's interests. But one of the catalysts for, for that question was kind of what you were, you were saying um, about how Pumping Station 1 got started, which is not the coffee house part, because I think, you know, that's universal, sure. but the the uh, the electronics and, and coding part and, you know, kind of the how that that was a shared interest that everybody had, um, you know, uh, in in the space Um and, and, you know, that that does seem to me to be something that might be different about these spaces. That's that, you know, maybe your pottery co-op, you might have a couple people who are interested in encoding in or whatever else. But that's certainly not a, a universal thing at those kinds of spaces, whereas at a hackerspace, what's your I mean, what's your experience? Is that something that's more prevalent Are people more technically inclined, not just with hardware, but with 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 software, with with coding, with the use of the Internet? Well, I'd say that that our hackerspace in particular is has a lot of it has a few interesting trends that I've seen, and and one of them is that people usually come in um, as more recently I'd say than than when it first started out, but people usually come in with this idea of oh I'm going to do this thing or I'm going to make this thing or I'm going to use this tool. And then in the process of exploring and looking around and seeing what other people are doing, they might not, they might not continue with that idea or they might change their idea entirely or they might go in search of something else or they might find something else that's, that's more interesting or, or more appealing. Uh, and so I think that for us, having this kind of like melting pot of ideas and equipment and skill sets and interests uh, is a really interesting place to kind of go and explore. And so we don't focus on a particular thing, and we have the benefit of being structured in a way that if a member gets involved, they can make a lot of change in the organization, positive change, right? They can make change that um, benefits them, benefits other people, and, and that brings other skills and interests along. And, and so our structure is really geared yeah. towards that, whereas something like a pottery co-op might be really specifically geared towards excelling at making pottery, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, right? That, that's, I, you, can, you can riff on, on that idea all day long, right? If you're really excited about ceramics or pottery, you know, there's techniques and there's, you know, things you can try and, and you can experiment just within that one realm. Uh, and I think that what makes Pumpkinization 1 interesting and what makes hackerspaces and makerspaces interesting is that 
is that you can be a little bit you can be a little bit more exploratory because you're not sort of stuck in one particular area. So you're, you know what I'm hearing then is kind of the the proximity to other um, vocations or other th- thing other ideas uh, creates kind of like collisions that maybe you know if you're of the certain kind of mentality, you begin to synthesize those seemingly disparate interests into something new, something different. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And then, and, and yeah. that I think happens a lot, even just that happens a lot with people that, that even talk about their project, right? We have, we have a, a Google groups forum and lots of times, um, especially new people will come in and they'll say, okay, well I have this, I need to use the table saw. Right. And, and so then people start poking at it, at, at that statement. And you, if you poke at it and you say, okay, well, why do you need to use a table saw? What are you doing with a table saw that maybe you're trying to do something that the table saw doesn't really like to do? Um, and so if you poke at that long enough, sometimes it's that, okay, if somebody is trying to do something with a table saw that a chop saw is better at doing, right? Or there's a, this entirely different method and you should be using the CNC machine instead of the table saw. Right. Or it could be that they're really pushing the limits of the table saw and that's a great learning experience as well. So like there's I think that that kind of folds back onto this idea of it really is helpful to share your work and share your process and how you're thinking about something and not just focus on this skill that I need to learn or this particular task that I have to do. Right. And if you can talk about it in terms of a project or in terms of um, the goal, uh, you have a little bit more leeway and you have a little bit more room to explore, um, other techniques and other processes and other ideas. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, I kind of want to, I don't, and I don't want to keep harping on the the pottery thing, but I want to go to your example of like somebody who wants to use a table saw or the wood shop and kind of expand out on that because, you know, what I'm curious about a little bit is, um, you know, if I'm in a place like a pottery, uh, you know, maybe I'm able to focus on being becoming really good at that craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm wondering what your impression is of, you know, if I'm at a place like a makerspace where, you know, maybe there aren't a lot of people focusing on the same craft. Maybe they're focusing on different things. Certainly you get that pro- the, the proximity and collisions we're talking about there. But does that, do you think that that dilutes or, or, makes it more difficult to become a, like a, a true craftsperson, you know, a, a truly great at any one thing um, at these spaces. I'm wondering if there's a differentiator there. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know. That, that's a, that's an interesting thought. Uh, I think that a lot of it has to do with, is rigor, right? It's something that I talk about a lot is like to be rigorous in, in your exploration of something, it has a lot to do with how skilled you become in that particular craft, right? And so th- I think that there's an opportunity to specialize very deeply and very heavily uh, in a particular area um, and bring your own experiences and and then obviously search outside of the makerspace and the hackerspace. And we, we just had one of our one of our volunteers just came back from Penland, for example, and she is very heavily involved in our small metals area, so making jewelry and things like that. And she went to Penland School in North Carolina and ended up doing some electronic stuff, but she also like 
was in a space and in a place where people were like focused very heavily on craft that she was particularly interested in. And so I think that in the process of exploring your own, your own interests and trying to be more rigorous in how you, um, you execute on those things that kind of, that it, to a certain extent, like extends to other people and they, and other people see that and that makes them want to be more rigorous of with things that, they're they're doing that might not have anything to do with what you're doing or that they might be interested in the thing that you're doing and also want to do the same thing i don't know if that if that is totally clear but the yeah essentially i understand what you're saying is that it, it seems like you could dilute that experience by having all these different different interests and to a certain extent i think that that is possible but part of it is also figuring out what it is that you want to do. And I think that a makerspace or a hackerspace is a really great place to not be limited or not be stuck in something that maybe you find you don't like doing. Sure. You know, to kind of talk about, you know, the person that you're just referring to and, you know, how other people might, it's almost kind of what you're talking about there is, is leading by example, right. And other people following and, um, you know, to kind of, to jump off on that and, and to, to start moving towards wrapping this thing up uh, is, you know, we've talked a lot about your your design process and your creative process and, you know, the advantage of being involved in makerspaces and uh, or hackerspaces and, and, and what Pumping Station was one does to, um, you know, f- to, to, to help people move along in their, you know, their learning and making process. Um, I, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about uh, what you know, what you do intentionally or what you see other people doing intentionally at Pumping Station One that maybe helps other people, helps foster that kind of environment of, of learning and making. What, how do you foster a, an environment that encourages people to take chances and, and to, to follow their mm-hmm. crafting passions? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways to get involved. And, and sometimes it's, it's a very, very simple thing. Um, personally, you know, I have long held that Pumping Station One is is kind of the project I like working on. I really like looking at this kind of this very free flowing organization as as an organism that you can kind of interact with and you can tweak little things about it and try to make the experience better for everybody. Um, so I've I've participated in Pumping Station One in that way for probably three or four years now where I've been involved in some way in helping develop structures or training or processes that could then help other people experience um, this, this, this kind of like making mentality of being able to get into a space and think about an idea and then execute on it. Um, and I think that there's, there's a lot of different ways to get involved uh, on that level. And lots of times that I think it goes back to this idea of sharing the thing that you are passionate about. And so having this community that then you can share with, uh, is a really great way to get other people involved and get them to share and get them to talk about their ideas. Uh, does that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. You know, one of the, one of the exciting things I think, um, we certainly can take an advantage of now that maybe, a. uh, you know, whatever, some other co-op that's been around for 50 or 60 years not couldn't have necessarily taken advantage of 
a couple of decades ago is, is number one, I mean, they could take advantage of the community that you're talking about in person, but, but we also have this advantage of having this community available to us online and being able to share what you're doing online. And also, um, you know, it's the difference between being able to make your own object and owning that object. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're making a bowl or if you're glass blowing or whatever, that's your thing. And, and having conversely now having the ability to put your design online and then have other people modify it and have that thing, not just be yours, but something that you share and then other people can, can read right. it. Right. Then it's, it's a shared experience, right? It's, yeah, so that's really interesting. And I think that's a good note to um, to kind of close off on. But I wanted to ask you a couple things. Where, First of all, where can we find you online? Where can we find Pumping Station 1 online? Um, how can people get in touch if they're interested in asking more questions? Um, so I am available through a couple of different, different channels. Um, so I have a, an Instagram channel, or I have an Instagram feed and Twitter. Um, and that's just AD Camardella. So it's AD in my last name, um, for both of those, uh, you could reach out to me through, um, my president email. So president at pumpingstation1.org. Um, or you could reach out to me personally, um, through my business email, which is Andrew at trimatter. That's T R I M A T T E R.com. Uh, so trimatter is the name of my company. And um, Pumping Station One is online at pumpingstation1.org. Um, and that's all spelled out, no numbers. And let's see, we have a public Google group, which is a, a kind of a nice place to ask questions. Um, and then otherwise, if you're in the area, we, we do welcome visitors into our space. Um, Tuesday nights at 8, uh, we have an open house. And that's a great time to kind of come by and meet other members and also get a tour of the space. And we also have lots of events that are open to the public. So if you check out our calendar um, on our events page on our website, you'll see, you'll see a, bu a bunch of different events that are um, kind of all over the place. Like we have some training uh, that's open to the public. So for example, if you're interested in CNC, you can come to our um, ShopBot class, which uh, goes over the software tool chain and how you start setting up files for machining. Um, and then we also have things like NERP, uh, which is not exclusively a Raspberry Pi club, which is basically a bunch of people that get together and talk about um, small form factor computers. Um, so we do have a lot of different uh, varied interests that are that we like to share with people. So if you're in the area, uh, definitely stop by. Um, but yeah, then otherwise, uh, online, our website and our Google groups is probably the best way to get in touch with somebody. Awesome. And there's a 10-year party coming up sometime. <laughs> yeah, some, sometime we'll have a 10-year party. I know that uh, we've been talking tentatively in the middle of September. We're trying to have a big party and, and have people come over and, and hang out and uh, just shut down all the machines and spread out a little bit and invite as many people as we can. So uh, we'll have some announcements for that later on. Great. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being my first uh, interviewer. Interview. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you giving us your, your insights in, into, uh, the, you know, the design process, craft process and making. 
Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, all the other interviews. So uh, thanks for having me. And it was a pleasure, as always, talking to you, Jay. And uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. This has been session one of the This Should Work podcast. Today's episode was with Andrew Camaradala from Pumping Station One and also an industrial designer by trade. Stay tuned next week. Uh, we should be releasing the next podcast sometime in uh, this, this second to last week of August. And we'll be talking uh, with Rudy Ristich about uh, making badges for the Thakhan uh, Hacker Conference and uh, how to scale up your own your own badges. Rudy also just got back from DEFCON, and uh, so he'll be able to talk with us a little bit about that and some of the badge life stuff that happened out there. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, keep your eyes peeled on shouldworkmedia.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Overcast, or any other media outlet that you use. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.